This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Uh, Matt Hogan is a friend who I know through his work at Inside ETFs as well as the Inside ETF uh, big conference. Uh, I also know him from his days running ETF.com, and he more recently joined a crypto fund where they are producing the very first index of crypto coins, which is quite fascinating. If you're at all interested in anything from the gamut of ETFs to Bitcoin, and quite bluntly, Bitcoins held in ETFs and everything in between, uh, then this is the conversation that's going to be for you. There are few people who are more knowledgeable about the entire process of creating, managing, marketing, uh, and administrating ETFs uh, than Matt, and taking that skill set and bringing it to a crypto firm where he's basically going to try and do for uh, various crypto coins and crypto assets what he helped do uh, with ETFs uh, is really quite a fascinating conversation. I think those folks who are interested in this space will find it uh, endlessly informative and entertaining. Uh, so with no further ado, my conversation with Matt Hogan. My special guest this week is Matt Hogan. He is the global head of research at Bitwise Asset Management. Prior to that, he was the chairman and pretty much chief cook and bottle washer at uh, ETF.com. That was purchased by Informa, and the Inside ETF uh, conference is the biggest ETF conference in the world. You're, you're still chairman of that event. I'm still that? chairman of that event. Yeah, I love it very much. Bitwise Asset Management is the creator of the world's first cryptocurrency index fund, Matt Hogan. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. I, I am a little bit of a Bitcoin skeptic, mm -hmm. but I'm open-minded because I'm somewhat fascinated by the underlying blockchain technology. Mm -hmm. And you know I'm interested in anything related to either uh, ETFs or indexes. So let's let's jump right into this. And why don't we start with your work at ETF.com? Great. Uh, what did you do there? So I, I, I started as a freelance reporter for its predecessor, which was Index Universe. And over I time, recall that. Uh, we left the worst URL in the world with Index Universe. Yeah, and, not, and a, not a winner. No, ETF.com is just marginally better. Oh, really? Uh, I would think that's a no-brainer. <laughs> I think it was a no-brainer. Yeah. So we switched to ETF.com. I eventually uh, became the CEO of the business. Mm -hmm. Some of the things I'm most uh, proud of that we did there uh, we built the largest ETF conference in the world, Inside ETFs. We built the first ETF classification and rating system. Huh. It's hard to imagine in ETF land that uh, eight or nine years ago, things like tracking error were not available to most investors. Uh, I mean, that's just that's just entry-level stuff, isn't it? It is entry-level stuff, but it didn't exist. Amazing. Uh, no one had even gone through the prospectuses to make sure that they were actually tracking total return indexes. Uh, it was a mess. So we built the first classification and rating system, uh, which we subsequently sold the fact sets, now mm -hmm. powers fact sets. System. And that's how our mutual friend David Nadig previously ended up at a fact set. And then didn't they get bought by, C was it SIBO? So, so we sold our business in three separate sales. We sold our uh, data business to fact set, uh -huh. our events business to Informa. And our media business, ETF.com, the property to CBOE, Got uh, which is now BATS, uh, or we sold it to BATS, which is now CBOE. Right. Uh, to confuse matters more, we sold Dave with the data business to FactSet, and then he left FactSet to go to ETF.com at CBOE BATS. So it's it's virtually impossible to keep straight in your head. <laughs> now, well, that explains my my lack of understanding. So, <laughs> so your CEO of ETF.com. At the start of the, I guess for lack of a better word, the ETF era, mm -hmm. what was the industry like? You mentioned some of the real basic metrics that everybody takes for granted with mutual funds. Yeah. That didn't exist for ETFs. Well, people have to remember that early in the days of ETFs, no one believed in them, no one trusted them, and no one understood them. There were huge myths about ETF liquidity. People didn't know what a creation redemption was. Sure. And people had no way to even answer basic questions like, what are all the emerging market ETFs? That didn't exist. 
Uh, no way to answer how well does this ETF track its index. So we spent a huge amount of time. I must have explained creation redemption. That's the thing that I think most of the investing public understands the least. Yes, yes. G give us a 30-second version. What is creation and redemption of the underlying in an ETF? Uh, sure. So let me start with mutual funds because people understand them better. Mm -hmm. When you invest money in a mutual fund, you send them cash. And then the mutual fund manager sits on that cash overnight. And then they come into work and they pick which stocks to buy and they buy stocks with that cash. And usually they're buying their existing model. Yes. Here's what our core holdings look like. Oh, we've gotten this much inflow. Great. Go out and buy pro rata That's everything right. we already own in proportion to in the money. In proportion. And then when you want your money back, the exact same thing happens in reverse. You say, I want my $100,000 back. They sell $100,000 of whatever stocks are out of favor, and they send you your cash. And that's that's a creation and a redemption in the mutual fund, but you're doing it. In an ETF, when you buy an ETF, you just buy it like you buy shares of IBM. I buy my shares- Like a closed-end fund. Just on the exchange, right? right. I, I might buy 100 shares of SPY, and you might be selling it, and we'll get matched at the exchange level. Uh, what happens with an ETF is instead of the ETF going out and buying the securities, it publishes a list of what securities it wants to buy. And a big institutional investor called an authorized participant goes out and acquires that list of securities. Say it's the S&P 500, mm -hmm. they buy all 500 securities. And then they send all 500 securities to the ETF company in exchange for the same value of shares in the ETF, which they can just send sell on the bro on the on the markets. Same thing happens in reverse. When these APs want to redeem shares, they say we want to we have 50,000 shares of this ETF. They send the 50,000 shares to the ETF company and the ETF company sends them the equivalent dollar amount in stocks which they can then sell. Now you may wonder why does that matter? And it matters for a bunch of different reasons. I'll give you two. So first, think about when you send money to a mutual fund company, they have to hire people who go into the market, decide what to buy, right. trade. It costs money. That raises the fees. Uh, the other reason it matters is when you redeem from a mutual fund, they have to sell actual stocks. If those stocks have appreciated in value, they realize capital gains in the fund. The horrible thing about the mutual fund industry is at the end of the year, everyone who still owns those funds has to pay taxes based on the fact that you left. Someone else sold, generated a capital gain tax event, Yep. and the people who didn't sell are on the hook. Are left holding the bag. So I always look at ETFs as having two really um, uh, attractive uh, qualities. One yep. is there, if you decide to sell your ETF and I don't, I don't get stuck with your capital gains. Agreed. And second, that whole um, creation redemption process means as, as long as the underlying holdings have liquidity, there's never a liquidity problem with the broader S&P-like ETFs, or am I wrong? No, you are absolutely right. I actually think if the ETF came first, the SEC would never have approved a mutual fund structure. Right? You're going to make people share in the tax event? That's insane. Socialism right? for uh, the tax For banks. investors, yeah it's, yeah. Totally, it's totally right. And you're absolutely right about the liquidity. As long as the underlying is liquid, the ETF is liquid, which is why, and people get this wrong, uh, the only bond funds that have blown up have been bond mutual funds. Right. Because they have to redeem out in cash. Because they're so math. illiquid. It, very often, it, it's only the top third or top half of the bonds in a lot of big indexes. Yeah. Trade regularly are, are deep and wide and have a lot. But by the time you get to the thousandth holding, it trades yep. every Tuesday by appointment. Not a lot of liquidity there. Good luck. People worry about bond ETFs blowing up. What they should be worried about is in a bond market crisis, corporate bond mutual funds blowing up and having real issues. I think that that could happen. So I have to ask the obvious question. Uh, ETFs were the hottest area in the markets. What made you decide to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this behind and make a leap into the craziness that is crypto, because you jumped into it yep. right in the middle of the mayhem. Yeah, yeah. Although, although it was uh, the plan to jump into it uh, started earlier than that, but that's absolutely true. I would say there are three things. Um, you know, when I got into ETFs, uh, they they weren't well understood, uh, and they weren't widely adopted, and they were still a new and emerging industry. And the only skill I have, to the extent I have a skill, is the ability to explain complex things in a simple way. 
Uh, and I felt like a lot of what I wanted to do in ETFs had been accomplished, right? I had helped create the first ETF rating system. I'd helped create the first ETF classification system. Uh, I'd done some small part to move ETFs into the mainstream. And now they are the dominant uh, way people get exposure to the markets. So I felt most of what I had done, uh, what I wanted to do, had been achieved. And I went looking for the next area of uh, disruptive opportunity uh, where I thought the quality of information was poor. Mm -hmm. I actually ended up with two. I ended up with, uh, with crypto and with option strategies, mm -hmm. both of which I think are potentially very important and both of which are really poorly understood by most investors. Uh, but this unique crypto opportunity to be involved in the cr first crypto index fund uh, appealed to my inner indexing nerd. So is there, are, there, are you seeing parallels between how crypto is being perceived by the investing public and ETFs in the 100%. early days? 100%. Do you remember when people talked about ETFs as weapons of mass destruction? Sure. <clears throat> Do you remember when people... Uh, wouldn't didn't think ETFs would ever amount to much. I think they were uh, the the iShares franchise uh, was sold for a dollar from Morgan Stanley to BGI, right? It's it's um, uh, it's nice, nice it's, trade. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, I think uh, Eric Valchunas called I, oh, it the Louisiana Purchase of Yeah, I hope ETFs. someone still has that dollar taped <laughs> on the wall somewhere. And, uh, but these these were not uh, people didn't think ETFs would amount to much, right? Uh -huh. They were a last ditch effort at to save the Amex and create trading volume. There, people didn't realize how good they were. And the same thing is crypto. People are reflexively dismissive of crypto. Uh, most people have given it about two and a half minutes of thought. Right. If you give it two and a half minutes of thought, you think it's fairy unicorn money on the internet. Uh, and it takes <laughs> it takes hours and days of really analyzing it to see where it might and may have value. So I see a lot of, of parallels. So, so to me, and I know this is almost a cliche at this point, blockchain is so obviously useful in so many applications that we've only begun to think about. Yep. It's that the the bitcoins and the ethereums and go down those hundreds of coins. Mm -hmm. It seems to be that there's a lot of speculative excess yeah. in the space, and I think that's what makes it so easy for people to you know just yeah okay Bitcoin Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin is the next you know dot com uh, and it, the parallels are there also. I, I think those parallels are accurate. Uh, it I think it is the next dot com. But remember. Really? Um, the dot-com bubble created uh, Pets.com, uh, but it also created Amazon. Right. So I think there are 2,000 cryptocurrencies out there. 95% of them are useless and will die a painful death. The sooner that happens, the better. Right. There's also a lot of bad activity, bubble-related activity that's getting cleared up. Right. But from those ashes, or if you call them ashes, I mean, crypto's up uh, 300% over the last two years. Right. So if that's ashes, they're nice ashes. But from those ashes, I think will emerge important things, just like from the dot-com ashes emerged Amazon, Google, Facebook, et cetera. Right. No, no doubt about that. I'm going to throw a quote at you, and I want you to um, explain it. You, you said you think um, we need crypto to cut out the rent-seeking middleman mm -hmm. that creates a tax on society. Yeah. Now, we're all familiar with rentiers, or at least we should be, but give us a, a little uh, a little detail. So crypto is the first time we've been able to engage in financial transactions between people who don't know each other without someone in the middle to verify those transactions. Mm -hmm. That's all that blockchain technology does. It allows you to replace someone in the middle verifying transactions like Visa or like your bank and your friend's bank with software that does it automatically and for free. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so much of the financial industry uh, is at some level a middleman, like an escrow agent right. that verifies trust and crosses transactions. And crypto has shown uh, that you don't need that. And that's a big deal. There, that's a huge deal. There's a huge deal. Now, we're miles away. We're years away. It's an early stage technology. We're years away. But already, you can go to IBM and you can wire money using a crypto asset internationally for much cheaper than you can send it through a traditional banking mm -hmm. system. So it is going to get here, but it is early. Quite, quite fascinating. So let's talk about some real-world applications mm -hmm. for, um, I think we want to separate the coins from the underlying software, from blockchain and mm -hmm. that technology. But you're focusing on the entire value chain from start to finish. Yeah. So so let's start with blockchain a little bit. Sure. Um, what are some of the near future, not 50 years future, 
applications of blockchain. Yeah, for what it's worth, I'm way more bullish on crypto assets than I am on blockchain. Really? That's the opposite of what so many people... It's almost a cliche to say, yeah, I'm skeptical about Bitcoin, but this blockchain is It great. is. I If you remember the early days of the internet, the really early days when there were books and you'd look up a website and type it in, yeah. uh, everyone was really excited about corporate intranets. They're right. like, oh, it'd be great to send files to Joe in accounting without having to walk over. People thought corporate- That's what Slack is for. Exactly. exactly. No, but people thought corporate intranets were the thing. The, thing, the, 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 the analogy between uh, an open internet, which people are like, no one will trust that. Right. Uh, it's the same between private blockchains and public blockchains. Public blockchains that are open and accessible by anyone need a crypto asset to function. And I think over the long term, public, open, accessible uh, technologies tend to win. Now, private blockchains are important. I think they could uh, revolutionize settlement. Uh, one of the things blockchain does really well uh, is settle transactions much faster. Uh, I think they could uh, they can memorialize data. I think they let you trace back transactions. But I think those are actually modest improvements. Uh, and I think the, the the massive improvement is this displacement of a trusted middleman that public blockchains allow. Huh. So one of one of my favorite examples is during the financial crisis, when we were securitizing mortgages by the millions, mm -hmm. slicing and dicing them, and then resecuritizing them, and then selling them. That un, undoing that Gordian knot became almost impossible, and yep. the banks ended up losing track of which bank owned which mortgage that went to which house. And there were actual stories of something that should be a legal impossibility. <laughs> People without a, a mortgage going on vacation and coming home to find that they were foreclosed on, all their stuff is out in the mm -hmm. street, there's an orange sign on their door. How was I foreclosed on? I bought this house for cash. That, that should be impossible. Should be. And then banks foreclosing that didn't own the mortgage foreclosing on somebody. And the example I like to use is if blockchain was used as a methodology to track where each of those mortgages went, it wouldn't have been that same impossible to untangle mess. You could have traced exactly who owned which mortgage yeah. and who owned which property as a failsafe. There would be no headaches at all. It's, 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 it's amazing, and it's amazing that it exists. We all buy something called title insurance. Uh, to guard against the risk that somehow this this most important asset we've ever bought is not actually ours. Um, it is incredible that that still exists in today's society. I think that example was a great one, uh, and there are many like that. Uh, so let's talk about, you're still chairman yep. of Inside ETFs. Why did you decide uh, to keep that role? Oh, I still love ETFs, and I still think the ETF industry is evolving uh, rapidly, and I still think there are a lot of things that people need to learn, particularly as we uh, enter a different cycle in the market. So the ability to still influence that conference was really appealing. I like to keep my, my hand in. I'm also on the board of a small ETF issuer, um, so I like to stay involved in the ETF space because I still think we have miles to go there. So I speak at a lot of events and conferences, and every now and then there's a couple of, you know, there's a good name or two that speak. Your conference held in Florida <laughs> in February of the year, it, it, it's mind-blowing. The list of names that show up. So last year, I got to interview Serena Williams yep. as, a, as a favor to you. Yes, yes. So I'll, call, I'll, I'll be calling back uh, <laughs> that favor. But before I interviewed Serena Williams, I'm in the audience watching Quincy Jones. Yeah. And then after I'm done with that interview, I went back into the audience and watched, was it uh, General McChrystal? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it was just like, and this year you have Michael Lewis, who I'll be interviewing in February, Paul Tudor Jones, yep. Joe Montana. Yep. I mean, you guys don't mess around. Bob Schiller. Uh, yeah, we don't mess around. Well, we, you know, one of the great things about running a conference company is that you get to indulge all your intellectual interests. So I love Michael Lewis. So why don't we want to have him there? Right. We love, uh, I love sports. So you can get football giants there. You had Alex Rodriguez the year I, I was one of the keynote presenters and I wish I would have hung around to he see that. He was great. Like I, I heard. And I, I, and 
how you find him. I read a great article where he reflected on sort of the challenges that he had faced. I thought he would be an interesting person to listen to. It's four days. And so you can't do four days of creation, redemption, and emerging market <laughs> debt. You need to give people a chance to to reflect and think about other things. And uh, yeah, we're really excited. I think having Schiller there this year at this time in the market is, is really timely. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, he's terrific. The Anybody wants to look up the agenda, you just Google Inside ETF yep. Conference Florida and February, and it'll show up. Um, it's always a uh, great time. So the next question I have to ask is, what do you hope to accomplish with this giant event? And and I don't know if I've, I've teed this up correctly for people. I'm not just promoting an event. I don't want people to think that. I go to a ton of events. This and SALT. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the two biggest conferences of the year. These are giant 2,000, 3,000 people events. So SALT in Vegas, the last time I went there, was an, uh, an amazing, there had to be 2,500 hedge fund managers there. Yep. And I got to run around and say, underperform, underperform. <laughs> I got around. I, I wasn't the most popular there guy there, although that was, uh, yeah, that's true. And um, <laughs> And then the first time I, I went to this event, yep. I was kind of blown away by how giant it actually was. And not just big for the sake of big, big with really big names and yep. really interesting things. What do you hope to accomplish with this event? Yeah, so so the event is focused primarily on financial advisors. And to my mind, it's a success if the people who come and take three days out of their lives to attend that away from their families find a way to sustain or grow their business. And so to do that, I want them to learn at this particular year's event a few things. I want them to think deeply about where we are in the economic cycle and what that means for clients and what that means for their bond holdings, et cetera. Right. Uh, I want them to, uh, to think uh, deeply about these new areas of the market that are opening up, not just crypto, which we talked about, um, but some of the thematic ETFs and whether those are performance chasing or valuable and interesting. And then one thing we try to do a little bit is ask them to think five years ahead. I think the financial advisory business is going to be fundamentally transformed in the next five years. I think we're on the, the cusp of an era of mass customization for client exposures. Uh, and just like we talked about robo-advisors five years ago when no one cared, uh, I think getting people to think about mass customization, personalized indexing, uh, ESG overlays now will be helpful to their business uh, in the years ahead. So uh, that's those are some of the things I want them to take away. So who attends these events? Is it just RIAs? Is it because when I was there last year, I saw a lot of ETF managers. I saw yep. a lot of active managers. I saw a bunch of economists and strategists. Yeah. Who's primarily in the audience? Yeah, I think I think everyone from the traditional asset management industry is there. So every ETF issuer, every index provider, all the APs and market makers. Also, all the uh, mutual fund managers who must be thinking about the ETF space are there to see and learn. And on the flip side, there are really two classes of investors. Uh, so there, there are a large number of financial advisors, and there's a rising number of institutional investors because they're increasingly using ETFs at the core of their portfolio and not just on the edges. So that, that mix comes together. So I recall last year you had Tim Buckley, the new CEO uh, of Vanguard. There were a number of other... You know, BlackRock, State Street, Wisdom Tree. Yep. It was hard to walk around and not run into some pretty substantial entities. Have you ever sat back and calculated the total <laughs> assets under management in that room? I have not. That's a good question. I'm I'll... gonna I'm gonna guess it somewhere, and there'll be a lot of overlap. Yeah. Because when you have the head of BlackRock and the head of Vanguard uh, up front, and then two-thirds of the audience owns BlackRock and Vanguard, yeah. you, there's a little bit of double counting. But I got to think there's like $10, $20 trillion there's, in that boardroom. There's a huge amount of volume. There's a thing called the inside ETF effect, which uh, ETF volumes tend to be down for the three days Get of the Get out of here. Is, uh, that, is that a fact? That it used, at least used to be a fact. I don't know if it continues to be a fact. So many people from the ETF industry are in Florida for this event that trading volume falls. Yes, it's modest, but yes, that is that has been a reported that's, truth. That's hilarious. <laughs> and I I just have to I just have to give my disclosures about this um, cuz we're all about transparency and full disclosure. So I have been a paid speaker at the Inside ETF conference 
And the Inside ETF firm is co-sponsoring a conference in 2019 in, in September in Arizona with my firm, um, RWM, Ritholtz Wealth Management, um, called Wealthstack. And I would rather disclose that than have somebody after the fact say, hey, why don't you uh, tell us about that? <laughs> um, two years ago, I interviewed Serena Williams, which was the highlight of, of my interview career as a tennis player. <laughs> and we, we played a couple of sets. She won 6'2", six, 6'4". Six, it was closer than you <laughs> would have imagined. That's not bad, not bad. She was six months pregnant at the time. Um, actually, this was right after she had a baby. And That's right. What was really interesting is what I'm fascinated by the non-finance people that speak at events like this, and you guys do a really good job programming this, is how many parallel learning experiences there are between non-finance-related businesses, and whether it's the military or sports yeah. or music, uh, there's some really fascinating things to learn about process over outcome, about our own errors and biases and how we can do better, even when we make mistakes, how we yeah. can learn from them. Um, that sort of that sort of stuff is always really uh, really fascinating. Who are you really looking forward to seeing speak this year? Yeah, I'm really looking for. I, I mentioned this earlier. I'm really looking forward to Schiller speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the time. So he's fat. You you've seen him before. I've he, seen him before. He's fantastic. He's fantastic, and and he seems honest and organic. He's uh, totally organic, which is which is unique. Not everyone is. A lot of people speak their book. Uh, and, For sure, and, and that's not true. Uh, I, I'm really excited about Michael Lewis. We've tried to get him many years, and uh -huh. the schedule has not worked out. Uh, he's one of my favorite authors. Uh, I see him uh, around town in Berkeley, and I always want to like stalk him and ask him to come. Speak. Now you have an excuse. Now he's there. So uh, I'm assuming you read the Undoing Project, which is his previous book. I the fifth column is the new one. I haven't read the new one. It's oh, on really? my list. I haven't so read it yet. I read it. We went down to Florida over the holidays. Yep. I read it on the plane, and it's it's great, but it's infuriating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's just, oh, why are they making these mistakes? <laughs> you know what it is? The big short is infuriating, but you feel like the people who deserve to, some of the people who deserve to yeah, get totally. punished, get punished. Right. In, in the fifth column, there is no <laughs> justice. It's like, wait, people are doing what? Yeah. No, that's wrong. Just bad. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's uh, it's quite fascinating. And um, I read that in anticipation of this interview. I we're, I'm looking forward to hearing you chat with them. Normally, I would have held that book for my like February March vacation, that's right. beach reading to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm like, no, no, I got to prep, you and I to like to, I like to read like a month in advance, <laughs> and then okay. kind of go through my notes a week beforehand, and it all comes back, but it's had time to percolate. I like it. Who, I like who, it. Uh, so Schiller, by the way, Schiller a prior guest, Michael Lewis a prior guest. Schiller's amazing. You're gonna have a great. I think he's not doing an interview. He's just uh, presenting. Right? He's just presenting. That's yeah, right. It, His it, outlook. It, it, He's, you know, professors at Yale, for yeah. some reason, have a way to command yeah. a stage and an audience. I think people will, will love him. And he doesn't go too far out into the weeds, even though he could at any time he wants. That is definitely true. You're, you're certainly, I assume you're familiar with his friendship with Jeremy Siegel. Of course. Who, which is hilarious. It is hilarious. And Jeremy Siegel is magic on stage. Yeah. I love seeing Jeremy Siegel before he goes on stage, where he's old. Uh, professor sort of me into him right. and then he goes on stage and he's just supernova it's amazing to watch him okay he's a fantastic <laughs> presenter so when he was on the show he was sitting where you were sitting and for whatever he he's in uh, University of Pennsylvania so yeah. they take the train in they must have him teed up for a dozen things I'm interviewing him towards the end of the day it's like five o'clock right and so it's a long day for anybody and for someone who's his age running around it, it's a long day and he's sitting there, and I want to say in like the last 30 minutes of two hours, he just starts swiveling with the chair, and then before you know it, he just starts doing this. And I'm sitting there watching this, and you could literally hear him. You could hear the Doppler effect that he, as he says, well, you know, in the first edition of Stocks for the Long Run, it was absolutely one of the things that I And I just had like a grin on my face that you it, it must have taken a week to, to for me to stop laughing. And then the amazing thing is he is consistently picked as um, 
everybody's favorite professor yeah, at Wharton. Yeah, of course. And I always, I always wondered why. And then you realize he's like this impish child, this delightful, <laughs> this delightful leprechaun discussing um, long-term expected returns of, right. of equities. Oh, of course the Wharton students love him. He's just like endlessly entertaining. I agree. And the two of them couldn't be more different personalities. It's so great. Yeah, no, it really is. It is so great. I have to mention a quote of yours that I'm tickled by and get get a response. So for a long time, I, I've been saying that uh, all the crypto heads are the new gold bugs. But, but you phrased it a little differently. You said Bitcoin was the new millennial gold. Mm -hmm. Discuss. Yeah, well, it's definitely true. Uh, every generation has an asset that they love or a way of getting exposure that they love. Uh, the greatest generation loved gold. Uh, then people loved active mutual funds. Gen X loved hedge funds. Millennials love crypto. If you ask millennials which would they rather hold, gold or, or Bitcoin, it's Bitcoin by a mile. Which would they rather hold, equities or Bitcoin, it's Bitcoin by a mile. Really? And I would say there are a lot of analogies between Bitcoin and gold. They're both non-sovereign stores of value. Uh, but Bitcoin is much more useful than gold. It's it's much For more sure. easily divisible. It can be spent. It can be stored. It's it's it can be transferred easily. Um, so it is. It's like an upgraded version of gold. I think I could get liquid with gold faster than I could get liquid with Bitcoin in size, and I certainly could trade gold for more things than I could for Bitcoin. Uh, right like, now. That's right definitely now. true. That yeah. is definitely true. Any early stage technology, uh, it, it takes a while to get up the spectrum. Sure. I'm not sure you're right about the liquidity in size. It depends on, you can get liquid in Bitcoin at very reasonable sizes very quickly. Certainly gold's a deeper I got market. $100 million in Bitcoin. I, I didn't know you were that well off, Barry, um, but that's that's. Well, great. this is for a friend. Yeah. Asking for a friend. <laughs> so he wants to know how he can get the hell out of this, and uh, there, are, there are some dollar limitations on the coin... No, that is true. It is an early stage technology, uh, and, and I'm not I'm not claiming it's more established than gold. Right. You know, if you look back at gold when it came off the U.S. gold standard, it went through a period of rapidly rising prices and massive volatility. It had years when it sure. went up 100 percent, years when it went down 33 percent. We just don't remember that. Uh, this is a new sovereign store of value. You would expect sort of an asymptotic rise in prices, and you would expect massive volatility. And if I'm right about Bitcoin 10 years from now, it will be boring like gold, too. Huh. Uh, and, and that's what we're waiting for. That's not the first word that comes to mind <laughs> when I think about Bitcoin. It's boring. <laughs> but by the way, people forget how many 80% drawdowns has Amazon had, has yeah. Apple had, uh, GE is in the middle of a 90% drawdown. Uh, major successful companies go through that on a regular basis. We tend not to want to think about That's it. That's right. And Bitcoin's gone through seven, six or seven, 70% plus drawdowns in the past. Mm -hmm. And each of those has set the stage for a new rally. Now, I'm not saying that will necessarily happen here. Um, but, you know, it's down 70%. It's up 300% over the last two years. So it depends on your perspective. Right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the index that yeah. you guys are putting together. You created the index. You're using it as a basis for an ETF. You've already filed with the SEC. So let's talk a little bit about that filing. What, sure. What do you disclose in that filing, and what should someone who's interested in buying an ETF that will hold coins, an index of coins, actually look like? Yeah, so uh, we have filed two applications for cryptocurrency ETFs. One is a index basket that holds the top 10 crypto assets, and one is Bitcoin only. So wait a second. I could buy Bitcoin when this is finally approved through an ETF. That would be the hope. Uh, that if the SEC approves this ETF, you will be able to buy it through an ETF. The same way you buy gold through GLD right. or silver for through SLV. Uh, you know, it's the same idea. It's easy exposure in a familiar brokerage window to something you otherwise have to buy in a different way. Right. Uh, and so there have been multiple Bitcoin ETFs filed. For what it's worth. Uh, we're moving forward more aggressively on our end with the Bitcoin filing than the index filing. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're hopeful uh, and optimistic that we can work with the SEC. They've raised legitimate issues, but we hope we can work through it and we'll see. And this isn't an ICO. So a lot of these initial coin offerings have been plagued with. Not, uh, this is an ETF yeah. equity trading vehicle that will hold Bitcoin. That's that's the hope, assuming that, it's approved. So now so, there's been a lot of scams not on that, yeah. but some of these 
wallets and and various coin offerings and yeah. uh, people have been hyping it up. Some a number of celebrities got associated with this and got into trouble with the SEC. You're trying to do the most uh, plain vanilla offering you can. Yep. With Bitcoin as the underlying asset. That is right. So so a lot of those ICOs were scams. I think were illegal. Uh, and will be will be prosecuted. People are going down. to jail. I think people will are going to jail, and I think they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it brought out a lot of bad actors in the space because sure. there was such massive wealth accumulation. But that doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate things. So right now we have a crypto index fund that's available for accredited investors. We have a Bitcoin fund for accredited investors. Uh, but the hope is we can launch an ETF that gives that exposure to everyone and makes it uh, safe, cheap, and easy to gain exposure to the market. I, I hope you've uh, picked out a nice um, security symbol. For oh, us. the ticker ticker choice is a big deal. Uh, it really is. People don't appreciate. Yeah. Do you remember Moo? That that exploded, <laughs> and you or Hack for that matter, H-A-C-K, uh, which is now in the midst of litigation. I hope yeah. it gets resolved sooner rather than later. Um, but, uh, having, and it's been shown even with equities, totally. if you have a good ticker symbol, yeah. it's worth a couple of percent in performance over time. I, I, and it makes perfect sense. It makes behavioral sense. I think it matters a great deal. And I can't wait until the day that we get to pick and disclose the, the right. ticker. I'm assuming you have one reserved and you just can't disclose well, it. Well, you never know. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about the methodology of the index. Is yep. it simply... Just the 10 biggest coins or the 10 most liquid coins? How are you putting that together? So at one level, the index is for, for our fund is uh, the 10 largest coins. Mm-hmm. But of course, everything in crypto, which is why I got interested, is more complex than it is in equity. So like you and I could say, what is the price of IBM? And we would say the exact same number. Uh, if you ask me what the price of Bitcoin is, I'd have to look at different exchanges, merge right. them together. Um, so everything is more difficult. But it is a market cap weighted index of crypto assets. And and let me say why I think that's an interesting strategy. Um, we work, don't know- Work for the S&P. Well, yeah. Well, we don't know what will happen in crypto, mm-hmm. right? It's early. These are competing protocols. They're each optimized for a different use case. Uh, and I'm not smart enough to know five years from now whether Bitcoin or Ethereum or Litecoin or Monero or these other assets will be the most important. I just don't know. And so the index gives you a simple way to make a simple bet, which is I think crypto will be more important in the future than it is today. Uh, and and if, if that's the bet you want to make, you want to make a broadly diversified bet. So why the top 10 and not the top 100? Yeah, there's a very big power law in crypto. So the top 10 captures about 80, 85% of the market. Mm-hmm. And after that, liquidity falls out. If you think back to the equity market in the early days of emerging markets, you would only buy large caps right. and then large mid. And now you buy everything. I think the same thing is true with crypto. Makes sense. Uh, I know the venture capital world has been very interested in everything from um, crypto to blockchain to what have you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bitcoin has some pretty high profile backers. What do you see in the VC space when it comes to cryptocurrencies? Yeah, a lot of interest and a lot of interest that's trickling into the endowment and pension space that's investing into crypto through funds like the Andreessen Fund or, or some of the other funds. Uh, A lot of the firms are trying to solve one of two problems. Either they're part of establishing this institutional ecosystem. Because remember, crypto emerged as a retail asset. It trades on lightly or non-regulated exchanges. Right. So you're seeing a lot of investment into regulated exchanges like BACT, which is from ICE, which is launching in in Q1. Uh, That's one thing. And then the other thing is companies that are improving on the underlying technology and the blockchain technology or building applications on top of that. Uh, and like any VC boom, uh, valuations are probably too high. Uh, there'll be a pullback. <laughs> but it, but it's exciting, and it means there's a big infusion of capital and big infusion of people working on the project. You, you mentioned uh, the pensions and the endowments that have a, a, an interest in this. Yep. Um, what other institutions are looking at this? And, and I would have to also bring up Fidelity yeah. of all companies made a big early um, jump towards crypto. Tell us what you know about that. Yeah, Fidelity's hiring up to 150 people to f- build a way for institutional investors to buy crypto and store it with a, a name they trust, right? One of the greatest right. brand names in the future. You'll ask yourself, why Fidelity and why haven't I seen BlackRock, State Street, other asset managers? The difference is that Fidelity is a family-owned firm. Right, They're privately still, held, not public. Still reputational risk in crypto. The sure. other big player in crypto is VanEck, 
also privately held, also sure. a family-owned firm. We, we know Jan. We know Jan. And I don't think that's a surprise. I think they're freed to do it. Fidelity saw that this is important. We know. We had conversations with 2,000 institutional and financial advisors uh, last year. There is dramatic interest in crypto. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want good ways to get exposure. Right now, most of the ways are retail-oriented and not institutional grade. And so they say oh, an opportunity to be first, and, and they're doing it. Huh, quite fascinating. I read a, a, a statistic a couple of months ago that I was kind of shocked at. Uh, approximately 25% of all the coins ever created have been lost. Mm-hmm. E- either their um, encrypted password access has been lost or it's physically on a drive that was destroyed or some source. that. Uh, how How accurate are those numbers? And if they are accurate, how can this ever really be a serious asset class if you know, think about all the VCR tapes and cassettes people have <laughs> that essentially technology yeah. has orphaned totally. Well, you, you couldn't orphan this because all that's written on that is like a 50-letter code. So you could literally, if you wanted to, write, write it, down it down on a piece of okay. paper and you would have it. Uh, it is true that it's a digital bearer instrument, like a bearer bond or right. like a bar of gold. And so if you lose it, uh, and what you it's lose lost. is that it's, it's lost. Um Again, you got to think this is an early stage technology. Right now, the UI for crypto is terrible. If you want to email me, you can email me matt at hogan.com. My first name and last name, easy, memorable. If you want to send me Bitcoin, it's like 52 random letters. Right. So I think the UI improvements will happen in 2019 and it will become easy to save, store, and spend uh, crypto. I think it's just a matter of software development. We have been speaking with Matt Hogan. He is the global head of research. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things crypto. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Bloomberg, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column. That's on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Matt, I'm, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I was looking forward uh, to doing this with you towards the end of last year. Yep. And things just got so crazy with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm glad we waited uh, a little while to just let everything settle out. Yep. Uh, but I have to ask, from a... Well, first, was, was Bitcoin a bubble last year? Yes, Total bubble. Total bubble. I mean, when did we start the year? Like 2000? It did 20,000. You no, mean, we, oh, 2018. When did we yeah, start yeah. 2018? It started, started around a couple thousand. And uh, then ended up at 19,500, something yes. like that. And there was speculative fervor, and there was every element of a bubble that you or I would recognize, including your bartender, in, your cabbie, and your your. 2017 kids. at Pete was the top. Yes. And then 2018 was what? Is that a 75, 80% retrenchment? Somewhere in there. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a big move down. It is significant, yes. It is still up you know, 300% from the start of 2017 until now. Right. Uh, so from a longer-term perspective, you know, people love to make fun of holders in crypto, the hold on for dear life. Uh, that's the same thing as buy and hold in equity. So you just have to have a little bit more perspective. But yes, it was a massive run up and a massive pullback. The the Qs, the Nasdaq 100 from 2000 to 2003, down 81%. Yeah. So this is comparable. I think that's right. And it did the same thing that happened in the internet, which is it attracted a huge amount of talent. It attracted a huge amount of capital. Uh, and it's been very painful for investors. I think out of that... For for investors or for the people who just jumped on blindly when it had already begun to move aggressively? The people who jumped on blindly when it already moved aggressively. And also, um, you know, volatile, highly moving assets encourage bad behavioral responses. So sure. there was bad activity. Um, but it did bring a lot of capital and interest and development to the ecosystem. So I do think interesting things will be born from that. But yeah, it was a, it was a difficult year in 2018. So let's talk a little bit about ETFs. You were the CEO of ETF.com. We've already discussed how the industry has uh, begun to mature and change since your involvement. And we'll we'll 
note that's a correlation, maybe not a <laughs> precise causation. But I have to ask uh, one of my favorite questions with anybody working in ETFs. Are there ETFs that exist today that you think should not exist? Should not exist. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. And, and I know exactly what you're going to say, but go ahead. What is it? Volatility ETFs. Oh, really? I'm wrong. I didn't. That wasn't really. What, I was what did you want? What did you think? I, I was, was expected say. like the three X inverse. Yeah, uh, I I don't I don't have a particular problem. I had more of a problem with those when they first came out because people didn't understand them. Right. Uh, I feel that people understand them now, and the quality of disclosures and information around them are better. Mm -hmm. My issue with volatility ETFs is people still don't understand them, mm -hmm. uh, and they they overwhelm the the actual volume of volatility futures, and there is massive contango that just makes them they're 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 testing Zeno's paradox of whether they can actually get to zero. And I think they're doing so in harming investors. You can't just go halfway Exactly. Time. You Ex don't think you can do that? I don't know. We'll find out. Um, explain Contango for people who don't understand uh, commodity futures. Sure. So Contango is when you buy a future, you're buying the right to buy it at a future date, let's say 30 days in the future. Let's say oil, to take a common example, is $50 now. The future may be trading at 55 if you buy it at 55 and the spot price doesn't move from 50 over the next month, that $55 future is going to converge down to 50 and you're going to lose $5. That's 10% of your money. The problem with volatility futures is that they almost always trade in contango and it is a very sharp contango. And so you're losing not just uh, a couple percent, you may be losing 10 or 20% of your money every month. And I think people bought those with the thought, Hey, volatility is at record lows. It's going to go up. That thought was right. As eventually, we eventually. Um, but uh, what they didn't realize is you're not buying VIX. You're buying VIX futures, and right. there's just a massive delta between the words VIX and VIX futures, and that delta is squashing investors. So as long as I'm testing you, let's do backwardization. <laughs> backwardization is the exact opposite. Right. If oil is at 50, you buy it at 45. As long as the spot price stays at 50, you make $5, which is whatever, 11 12%. Uh, and, and that's a more positive situation. My issue with ETFs and all these futures-based ETFs is a lot of, they're available to all retail investors. Mm -hmm. And retail investors may think, I'm buying oil. That's the spot number that I see on TV. Right. And that's not. You're buying oil futures. Now, it's disclosed and disclaimed, uh, and I'm generally in favor of ETFs existing in these markets, and, and probably they should even exist in volatility. But the, the educational burden required is massive, uh, or else mom and pop can buy them and get crushed. So now there are different gold ETFs. You mentioned GLD. Uh, am I misunderstanding that? I'm under the impression GLD represents physical gold held in vaults. That's correct. It owns gold. But there are other ETFs, and I don't remember which, that are actually trading gold futures, not buying the gold. That's right. Uh, and some of these are leveraged, and some of them are inverse, et cetera. That's, that's exactly right. So it, when you get into leverage, you, you may well use futures to get those leverage. There may even be uh, 1x gold futures ETFs. I'm not sure. I don't know why anyone would buy. Gold always trades at a persistent contango that's about equal to the risk-free rate, so you're just losing a little bit of money. Right. Um, the, the one advantage it would give you is is their taxes futures, which if you hold them for short periods of time is a beneficial tax treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, so there may be a tax angle for short-term traders of gold. Oh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so, so that's one particular ETF um, that you don't think ought to exist. Yep. I would wanted to steer the conversation in a slightly different direction, so let me throw this at you. Yep. How do you look at the Darwinian process of all these ETFs coming out each year, most of which don't survive? Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great. If you didn't have that process, you wouldn't have a significant— you wouldn't have the ETF industry, for starters. right? The ETF industry really— uh, in, in real life was launched at BGI when they launched a huge number of ETFs. It wiped out bonuses at BGI for three years. All the executives were angry, uh, but they were like, let's give this a shot. And and all of the ET a lot of the ETFs that we take for granted today uh, were spaghetti on a wall. Like right. A lot of factor ETFs, low volatility ETFs. Um, so you can't get innovation uh, without some misses. And so I'm fine with them being launched and closed. So what what is uh, Jeff Bezos's comment? If if you're not failing, you're not taking any risk. It, that's exactly right. You, you have to at least try the, and, and just recognize we don't know what's going to work, I but think, we won't know until it 
until we, you know, put up the flagpole. Until we give it a shot. Yeah, uh, and, and, you know, the first, the first article about uh, all the ETFs needing to exist, uh, I think ran, I'm going to get this wrong, I think it ran in investment news in 2003. They were mm-hmm. like, we've reached the end of ETF <laughs> innovation and development. You can already buy stocks and bonds. And that was like, that was it. Uh, and those have, those have appeared over and over and over again. So never uh, discount. I don't think we'll ever get to the end of ETF. So let me ask you a different version. It seems that, and, and you'll, you're will you a geek, so you'll appreciate this. We don't have a, a Gaussian distribution of firms and assets. It's right. a very much a fathead long tail mm-hmm. where you have the big four, really the big three, mm-hmm. Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, I'm trying to even think who is the next closest after them. Power uh, shares. Pa- yeah, and that's but the, you, get, you, you. You get down the spectrum. Pretty but quick. I mean, your your power law distribution is it's three, and then it begins to fall off pretty rapidly. Yeah. Why have only three companies captured so much of the investing public's mind share? Yep. And uh, assets, uh, the actual dollar share. Uh, BlackRock is six trillion, going on seven trillion. Yep. Vanguard is five on the way to six. Trillion with a T. Why is it just a handful of companies that seem to be the biggest winners in this space? Because ETFs are a natural monopoly system, unlike traditional active mutual funds. In active mutual funds, you need a Cambrian explosion, different guys trying different things. In ETF land, a large liquid ETF is better than a small illiquid ETF. So if you already have good exposure to the S&P 500, you don't really need other funds. Now, other funds have popped up because you get distribution in different channels. There may be two or three ETFs offering broad-based exposure, but you're going to see severe concentration in ETF assets as long as they're dominated by index exposure Uh because larger is better in ETFs. And that is uh, a good thing for investors, and I think it will persist maybe indefinitely and certainly for the next 10 years. so larger is better, and I'm going to guess that's a function of a combination of scale, quality, and liquidity. Are those the and, three and bigs? Yeah, scale. It costs. Yeah. Right? It's it's cheaper to run a large ETF than it is a small ETF. There are just no advantages to a smaller ETF. Now, smaller ETFs can be liquid, and they can do innovative things, but you, you can't launch a Me Too ETF without a unique distribution mechanism like Charles Schwab uh, has. Uh, and expect it to gain assets. They'll just all go, mostly, not all, but mostly they'll go to the large players. And that's why it's a great business for for BlackRock and Vanguard and, and State Street. Huh, quite fascinating. I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's jump to my favorite questions, and I'm going to throw a few uh, curveballs at you with this. I'm ready. Uh, let's start. What's the most important thing people don't know about Matt Hoagland, which is an inside joke about Matt Hogan. Let's see. Uh, my career started as a minor league baseball mascot. Uh, <laughs> a mascot. Yeah, I was a nine foot seal for the Double A Portland Sea Dogs. Um, no, I, I, I say that in jest. Uh, my career path has been very unusual. Uh, I've been a speechwriter. I've worked in biotech. I've been a biotech portfolio manager. I ran ETF.com. Now I'm in crypto. Um, uh, all those are only united by the, 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 how much I like to talk about things that seem complex. Um, but, but that's the unique thing about my career. It's been very varied uh, over time. Well, well that's, uh, that's certainly interesting enough. <laughs> Why is this lighting up? It's all joke. Um, tell us about your early mentors. Who helped shape this uh, serpentine career of yours? Yeah, the, the the number one person who comes to mind is a former guest of yours, which is Dave Nottig. Uh-huh. Uh, Dave Nottig hired me when I was a minor league mascot to become a biotech analyst at the at the transparent mutual fund he was running at the time. Oh, uh, macro... Um, Metamarkets. Metamarkets, Yeah, we right. ran Open Fund, which was the first mutual fund to disclose its trades in real time. Right. Uh, we uh, even had, way ahead of the curve. Way ahead of the... We had live video uh, where you could watch us trade. Um, and, and I learned a lot of things from Dave. Uh, he continues to be a good friend, and we've worked together at three or four companies since. Um, he he taught me an, uh, the, the the core importance of being honest uh, with your colleagues when you go to work. And I, I think the first company you work for in a serious way, and the first person you work for, uh, is really important in shaping how you view the world and how the, how your career progresses. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, 
Dave is now with SIBO, and he runs ETF.com. Yeah, he, he sits in my former seat. <laughs> That's funny. So what? In, what? let's talk about investors. What investors influence the way you think about things like ETFs or crypto? Yeah, uh, Jack Bogle uh, is, is the only investor who really matters to me. Maybe my grandfather a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I'm one of the—so I work in crypto. I'm one of the most boring investors in the world. I don't think I have traded my portfolio other to rebalance in eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sort of the, um, the the overwhelming math that Bogle presented, right? I started my career on the active side as an active biotech analyst and then an active biotech portfolio manager. And I learned the hard way that active doesn't work. And so pivoting into indexing and, and learning from Bogle um, set the stage for my ETF career and set the stage uh, even for my crypto career, although that probably makes uh, Jack Bogle want to throw his head against the wall. <laughs> and also a uh, prior guest on, on Masters. One of my business. heroes. Uh, that's fantastic to hear. So let's talk about books. Yeah. What are some of your favorite books, be they investing, non-investing, fiction, non-fiction, crypto, or otherwise? <laughs> I, I knew you would ask about books, so I was thinking about the most important books I've read. Uh, the most important book to my life, probably, was A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius by uh -huh. Dave Eggers, uh, who both writes with unique clarity and also came at a time when I needed to rediscover uh, my agency and ability to shape my life in the way that I wanted, and that was a very important book for me. Um, uh, after that, uh, it's it's a weird amalgam of, of a handful of poetry books and then whatever I've been reading most recently. So the, the book I've been reading most recently is A History of California. I'm a transplant to California. I moved uh -huh. there 10 years ago. Isn't everybody a transplant? I, 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 basically, right? yes. It feels uh, like that. Uh, and my kids are learning all about California history the same way I learned about Virginia history when I was a kid. Uh, at the time, I thought that was just history. But it turns out you learn different things depending where you grow up. What What's the name of the book? It's named California. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll tell one little anecdote from it Please. That, that, that empowered me. Uh, if you go to California, it looks like sort of the, especially Southern California, it looks like the Mediterranean. All the houses are in these Mediterranean styles. And I assume this was organic. But in fact, it wasn't. It all started uh, in, in, in Santa Barbara when Santa Barbara burned to the ground. And at the time... What uh, year was that? Uh, it was 20s, okay. I think. At the time, uh, there was a lot of advertising to get people to move out there, and people were deliberately casting it as the Mediterranean of the Americas. And so they built it in its physical presence to look like that. And what that reminded me of was something that I had forgotten, which is the importance of narrative in the ability to shape reality and how, how being able to define and see what it could be actually can lead to physical developments that, that become entrenched and just become part of society. And I thought that was an interesting... Life imitating insight. art. There you go. Exactly. Interesting. And uh, as long as you mention poetry, yeah. we're a very um, hip audience of listeners. <laughs> Give us uh, uh, what's your, who's your favorite poet or their favorite book. Your yeah. Favorite book. Uh, August Kleinzoller's uh, Red Sauce, Whiskey, and Snow is one of my favorite books of poetry. I think Red Sauce, Whiskey, and Snow. Yeah. I think about 50% of the poems in there are terrible, but the other 50 are seen with such clarity and with, with the kind of emotional connections that really resonate with me uh, that it's, it's an important book to me, and I read it regularly. Huh. That is quite fascinating. <laughs> um, so I have to ask, this is a question I uh, we were talking about earlier, and I'm actually debating making this a regular question uh, because our conversation about it was so fascinating. But what was your first car? Uh, my first car uh, was a terrible, as I said earlier, a terrible choice. I bought a Volkswagen Jetta shortly after I got my first job. And that was a disaster in like nine different ways. Really? Because my experience with Volkswagens, yeah. and this might have been cars of a different era, the 60s, 80s, whatever, right. they were indestructible. I had a VW Bug with 300,000 miles. My roommate's Volkswagen Golf, we would just take it apart and swap out parts. Mm -hmm. I need a new Fender and just take the old one to the junkyard. Hey, I need one of these. Yep. $5. All yeah. right, new Fender. 
Like, you can't do that anymore, but they were pretty indestructible. Why was the Jetta a pig? So, so for two reasons. One, it was utterly destructible. It constantly <laughs> broke down. Right. Uh, and, and two, uh, like, it was an aspirational purchase, right? It was a, a poor man's uh, Audi. I said a poor man's Audi, I said a right. poor man's BMW. You, you improved on that with a poor man's Same Audi. owner, same parent company. Yeah. Uh, so, so I bought it because I thought, I, I'm a biotech portfolio manager. I need this nice new car. Uh, I could have done so many better things with that money than buy this terrible car uh, with a poor historical track record of reliability, which I knew when I bought it, but I liked the way it looked. And it, it was, the people I was around owned Volkswagen Jettas, and I bought it. Uh, and it was just a yoke on my neck until I finally sold it. <laughs> That's very that's very funny. <laughs> so um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Yeah. Uh, so when I was a biotech portfolio manager at Open Fund, uh, I bought a, f- a company called Titan Pharmaceuticals, which had a drug in front of the FDA. This is 99, This is 2000 was when I think I made this purchase. Okay. Uh, biotech's obviously a binary outcome at the FDA, uh, and it went against me, and I lost a huge amount of money. Uh, for the company. And I learned two really important things from that. When it happened, I thought I was going to get fired uh, because I was new to the job and I just lost like $2 million for the for the fund, which to me at the time, having been a-, a More money a, than God. A, a, more money than God. Right. Uh, and, and no, one of the things I learned from my mentor, uh, Dave Nodig, was all you have to do is own up to what went wrong and design a process so it doesn't happen again. Uh, and I did that and then just went on about my day. And I've used that with every subsequent failure in business. Uh, and it immediately clears the air and gets you on a better path. The other thing I learned, uh, which was unique to investing in biotech but has application, was I had focused entirely on the wrong thing. So the sexy thing in biotech, the thing everyone talks about is does the drug work? Uh-huh. And the, uh, the, the, the does the drug work question for Titan was true. It seemed to work. But that is not what the FDA cares about. The FDA is a bunch of doctors. The Hippocratic Oath says first do no is harm. It safe? They care only about safety. If it right. might work, uh, but it's safe, they'll approve it. This one, there were risks, but there were also benefits, and they just shot it down. And, and it, it, it taught me that you have to frame things not from what you think is important, but what from the people who are in control of that think is important. And in biotech, that's safety. Efficacy is, is, a, is, a, is a distant second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true, like when I built the ETF conference. When you build an ETF conference, you want to focus on what's going to go up the most the next year. Where should people invest? What financial advisors want to learn is how can I retain and grow my clients? Right? They want to know, I want to make sure I don't get fired. And whether I can build a better portfolio is actually secondary to, do I understand this? Can I talk about this? Will this help me win new clients? And so to, the ability to reframe uh, what you think is important into what's actually important was an important lesson. So tell us what you do for fun. What do you do to relax or stay in shape outside of the office? Yeah, I'm a runner. I, I love to run. I love to hike. Uh, but I have, uh, I have three kids a wife who works. I work at a startup. I sit on boards. I have four chickens. Uh, mostly, I just try to keep all this plate spinning. Uh, but when I do get away, I like to I like to run or hike or be outside. So I'm gonna I'm gonna back you up a little bit because <laughs> slipped into that whole running hiking family thing. Yeah, was something about. Chickens? Chickens, yeah, yeah. So we went to the feed store with the kids to get some hay because we thought it'd be cute to have hay bales for a party for people to sit on. And in the feed store were two-day-old chicks. Right. My kids are very this convincing. This bit sitting your, oh, in your, they're, they're adorable. So adorable. And so we, we brought home, uh, I was convinced, to bring home four chicks. Uh, they cost $3.75 each, if you want to know what chicks cost. Right. Um, I, now, I actually buy them by the dozen, and it's $1.89. <laughs> well, I, I should have learned. Um, now they're two and a half months old. Uh, now we've invested money in a chicken coop. The first egg that we get, which will be in like a month and a half, is going to cost me about two thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, and it that's better, a good egg. It better be. It a better good be egg. a good egg. Uh, wow. the, the chickens are great. The chickens are great. That, uh, how, are, can you interact with them as a pet, or are they just dumb little dinosaurs running around? Actually, they're very nice. Yeah, they're very nice. I mean, they they you feed them. They should be. You feed them. They like you. They they each have their own personalities. Uh, Distinct, like you. Noticeably yeah. different bird oh, personalities. Oh, hundred percent. You have the nice guys. You have the sort of the sort of mean guys. They they do different things. Um, they all look different because they're different breeds. Uh, they have a half life when you pick them up of about ninety seconds. If you hold them for more than ninety seconds, 
they start to poop everywhere. Right. And so you can pick them up, and they're very cute, but the clock starts ticking, and you gotta like <laughs> you gotta put them down before disaster happens. That, that's hilarious. <laughs> when when I lived in the city, our next door neighbors had dozens of birds. And they had a cockatoo that was a baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they would go away, uh, you know, the one bird that needed attention was Gonzo. So we would babysit this cockatoo. And even at like a year old, I would hold him on my arm. He would put his wing around me. And the two of us would watch TV. There you go. And he truly had a personality. <laughs> he was very smart. I taught him to laugh. But... <laughs> They're known as really intelligent birds. Right. Chickens aren't necessarily have that same reputation. So I was curious about the personality. Yeah, and yeah how, they, uh, they still have some personality. We haven't watched TV, much TV together, but but we, they do have personality. And, and are the kids okay when mom makes chicken for dinner? That hasn't been a problem. Oh, oh so my kids are vegetarians. They so are. So this has not come up cleared, as yeah. a— uh, Yeah, it hasn't come up. Uh, uh, but they're ready to eat the eggs. Hold on a sec. You're not a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. You are? Yeah. I've had meals with you. So I'm I'm an opportunistic vegetarian. <laughs> okay. So 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 my rule is I'm a vegetarian unless if Reynolds is around, there's going to be red meat off. at the table, right? Uh, unless it's going to be really exceptional or different. You, okay. you have to experience the world. So that's fair. Opportunistic vegetarian. That that's absolutely fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> so our last two questions: If you were giving some advice to a millennial who was mm-hmm. interested in a career. Of either finance or crypto, what sort of advice would you give them? How do you think they should uh, approach either of those fields? Ooh, interesting. Uh, and I'm not asking which would you steer them no, towards. No, I get that. I'm asking, hey, what advice would you give them yeah. if they came asking about that? Yeah, so uh, either I would advise them, as I do most young people, to take some time off and go travel and play around while they're young before they get serious about their career. If they didn't take that advice, which I think is good advice, um, I would encourage them to think most about their company, the company they choose, and their direct manager, and think the least about their intro salary or their title uh, or even what work they're going to be doing. It's vastly more important to engage yourself with a well-run company uh, and with a good manager where you can learn good work habits than it is to make an extra $4,000 a year uh, or, or to have a particular job that focuses on one skill set or another. So, so pick your company careful, pick your manager really carefully, uh, and ignore all the rest. Huh. Sounds like sounds like pretty good advice. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 20-something years ago when you first began? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, obviously, uh, buy Apple is the easy answer. Um, or <laughs> well, buy but, Bitcoin at, you know, when it first comes so out. So Apple at 120? Uh, I don't know. Or, or Bitcoin at 4,000? Or do you mean if you had a time machine and could go a back? A time machine. Oh, so sure. that's an easy question. That, I'm asking ah, no time machine. No time machine. What do you know today that you wish you knew back then? That I get. Okay, great question. Uh, I learned every hard knock investing lesson there is to learn. Uh, and so I could tell you not to do those things. Like, uh, like uh, don't confuse uh, your your lucky pick of a stock that went up with true skill. Uh, don't uh, sell when you feel uh, the the painful feeling in your gut. Uh, just buy and hold and never sell. But you wouldn't listen. So um, I guess it would be just buy things. Selling things is where everything goes asunder. Just just buy things and hold them uh, and, and sit on it forever. Huh, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Matt Hogan. He is the global strategist at Bitwise Asset Management, uh, Global Head of Research. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 250 such conversations we've had over the past five or so years. Uh, You can find that at iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together this conversation each week. Carolyn O'Brien is my uh, audio engineer par excellence. 
Medina Parwana is our producer. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.